Giuseppe Verdi is one of our favorite composers here at Opera Talk. For most of his life, he was a veritable opera factory, sometimes composing an opera a year. Having been born in 1813 and died in 1901, his career spanned much of the 19th century and defined a style of opera which we now call Italian. The opera we'll be discussing was Verdi's third, but his first true success, which came from a combination of timely subject and powerful music. The subject was a biblical one about the Babylonian captivity of the Jews in 586 B.C. Verdi captured the anguish of the Jewish people in this opera by giving the chorus both exciting and inspiring passages. So it makes sense for us to discuss this wonderful early opera of Verdi here at this beautiful synagogue, Congregation Beth Israel, where we can maybe capture a bit of the inspiration that Verdi himself felt when faced with the libretto of this opera for the first time. The name of the opera? Nabucco. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Verdi was born in the small village of Busetto in northern Italy, and at the age of 20 he went to the nearby city of Milan to study music. While there he decided to become a theater composer. In 1834 he was called back to Busetto to become the director of the local music school and church organist, but really he went back to Busetto to court the daughter of his sponsor, Margherita Barezzi, whom he married in 1836. They eventually had two children, one of whom died in 1838 while he was writing his first opera, Oberto. When Verdi returned in 1839 to La Scala in Milan to rehearse Oberto, the second child died. Even more devastating was the death of his wife, Margarita, while Verdi was under contract to write the comic opera, Un Giorno di Regno, or King for a Day. Verdi was grief-stricken, obviously, and to try to write a comedy at this time must have been tremendously difficult. He asked out of the contract, but the theater refused because the opera had to be produced a short three months later. After this, Verdi tells us he decided to leave opera for good. Although Oberto was well received, Un Giorno di Regno was not, and it was removed from La Scala's repertoire after only one performance. Verdi wanted nothing more than to retire. The director of La Scala at the time, Bartolomeo Merelli, had a libretto on a biblical subject that had been written by Temistocle Solera, an up-and-coming poet, and Merelli thought that he might be able to tempt Verdi back with it. Verdi wasn't interested at all. He preferred to stay in his rooms reading bad novels, according to one of his friends. Morelli finally thrust the libretto into Verdi's coat pocket and shoved him out the door of his office. Verdi returned home and threw the libretto on his desk, where it remained for a couple of months. Well, whatever inspired Verdi to complete the work finally, it was finished by the fall of 1841. The cast included the soprano Giuseppina Streponi, the woman who eventually became Verdi's lifelong companion and his wife. Rehearsals began in February 1842, and the opera premiered on the 9th of March. It was an unqualified success.
The libretto by Solera, based on a biblical spectacle by a French playwright, is about as true to the real history of the Babylonian captivity as Cecil B. DeMille's cinematic epic The Ten Commandments is to the Jews' sojourn in Egypt. The broad outlines of the biblical background are true enough, but the characters are completely fictitious, at least other than the name of the protagonist, Nabucco. Nabucco is, of course, an operatic stand-in for Nebuchadnezzar II, the Babylonian king who in the 5th century BCE destroyed the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem and abducted tens of thousands of Jews, bringing them back to Babylon. This traumatic event saw not only the destruction of the Holy Temple, but the obliteration of the ancient kingdom of Judah, which had begun with the reign of King David five centuries before. Nebuchadnezzar brought with him the best and the brightest, scholars, religious leaders, artisans, all of whom were put to work in Babylon to improve and beautify the empire. In the story of Verdi's opera, Nebuchadnezzar first begins as an enemy of the Jews, and he disparages and insults their god. Through a series of events that we'll hear about in the synopsis of the story, he goes mad, is dethroned and imprisoned, and in despair, he actually turns to the Hebrew god for help. In essence, he converts, and through this conversion, he frees the Jews from their captivity and allows them to go home to Israel. The librettist of Nabucco has done this for dramatic purposes, really, and it's a little less busy than having the Persians descend on the Babylonians at the end of the opera, kill Nebuchadnezzar, and free the people. The problematic role in the opera was that of Nabucco's evil daughter, Abigaile, portrayed originally by the soprano Giuseppina Streponi, who, as I said earlier, became Verdi's wife. The role was so taxing, so demanding, that it practically did her in and effectively ended her singing career. But as Verdi's companion and inspiration, she was instrumental in helping the composer create some of his greatest works and keep his career alive well into his 80s. Opera audiences have a lot to thank her for. begins as the Jews are about to be defeated by the Babylonians with Nabucco and his army at the gates of Jerusalem. The Jewish high priest Zachariah asks his people to trust in God. In the meantime, Nabucco's younger daughter Fenena, who is being held hostage by the Jews, is in love with her jailer Ismaele, who was once saved by Fenena when he himself was being held hostage by the Babylonians. The two are preparing an escape when Abigail, Nabucco's older daughter, hears of their plans and threatens to reveal their plans unless Ismaeli becomes her lover. As Nabucco enters the temple, the high priest Zechariah threatens to kill Fenena, but Ismaele saves her from Zechariah's dagger. In Act Two, in the city of Babylon, Abigail learns that she was born a slave, not really the daughter of a king. Nabucco has appointed his younger daughter, Fenena, regent, and Fenena, in turn, has converted to the Jewish faith and frees the Jews. As Abigail plots to seize the throne for herself, Nabucco declares himself a god and demands everyone to bow down and worship him. He is stunned by heavenly lightning and collapses into madness. Abigail picks up the fallen crown and proudly places it on her own head.
In Act 3, Abigail has obtained a decree of death for the Jews and Fenena and forces Nabucco to sign it. But Nabucco begs for his daughter Fenena to be saved. Abigail tears up the document that revealed her slave origins, takes her adoptive father prisoner, and prepares to have all of the Jews executed. The Jews sing of their yearning for their homeland in the stirring chorus, Va Pensiero, a paraphrase of Psalm 137. In Act 4, Nabucco regains his sanity and sees Fenena being taken to the altar of Baal for sacrifice. He prays to the God of the Jews for forgiveness and release. He leads a revolt against Abigail and frees the Jewish prisoners. Nabucco sends them home to Jerusalem, where he instructs them to build a new temple. At the end, Abigail takes poison and seeks forgiveness for her sins. As she dies, the high priest Zachariah gives thanks to God for the release of the Jews. Now for something completely different. I'd like to do a little exploration of deep background into the story behind Nabucco. And of course, that brings us into biblical discussion and historical discussion. In order to do that, I've invited Dr. William Propp, who is a member of the history department at UCSD, uh, ancient history professor, as well as a professor of Judaic studies. Uh, Dr. Propp, I'm, I'm delighted to welcome you to Opera Talk. Thanks, Nick. Um, let's start with one thing that really confused me in doing a little bit of research uh, on the look of Nabucco, the opera, because you often see Assyrian artifacts and the, the Assyrian look at the same time as you see the Babylonian. I mean, what is the distinction between the Assyrian kingdom and the Babylonian kingdom, or, or is there? Right. Viewers who've never seen Mesopotamian art, in fact, can drive up the five and look at the Citadel shopping mall, which was designed to imitate um, Assyrian architecture That's and sculpture. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the field of Mesopotamian studies, in fact, is called Assyriology, which creates confusion. The um, first extensive documents to be deciphered came from the Assyrian region, the great library of Nineveh, mm -hmm. and that lent its cast to the whole field of Mesopotamian studies. And today, what part of the world would that be? Right. Assyria um, is North Mesopotamia, basically the Kurdish regions, uh, Kirkuk, Mosul, places like that. So well, what we would think of today as uh, Northern Iraq. Right. Okay. And um, Babylonia is the heartland. The city of Babylon was very close to Baghdad, the mm -hmm. confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates. Mm -hmm. And um, time frame is somewhat different. These cultures dominated one another successively. The most famous um, Babylonian king, aside from Nebuchadnezzar, is Hammurabi, who flourished in the um, 18th century BC, the famous law code, mm -hmm. um, dominant king of his time. Then in the um, first part of the first millennium BC, the Assyrians campaigned all over the Near East, created an empire. Um, that fell in the seventh century, and Babylonia under Nebuchadnezzar's um, ancestors stepped up to fill the vacuum. Ah, okay. So they were very closely related. Very closely related. Not really the same. Yeah, the Assyrians had a kind of child-parent attitude towards the Babylonians. They saw the Babylonian southern Mesopotamian culture 
as normative, foundational, and older than theirs, and successive Assyrian monarchs built up and raised to the ground Babylon mm. because of this love-hate relationship they had with their culture of origin. It's funny how often the northern-southern uh, struggle right. occurs. <laughs> yeah, we have in, in ancient Egypt, there was a real dichotomy, and in ancient Israel too, a north-south distinction. Well, what about Nebuchadnezzar? He was actually Nebuchadnezzar II. Uh, what, uh, he had a very long reign. Right. He was a very successful king. Um, his name was Nabu-Kuduri-Utsur, and the Bible records that as both Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadrezzar, the latter being a little closer. Um, it was just the tradition of Mesopotamian kings. Well, I often compare them to little boys. If you ask someone what the stereotypical occupation of a little boy would be, it would be building and fighting. Mm -hmm. Building, destroying, building, destroying. And that's, that's what they did at the beginning of their reign and each year thereafter they went out onto the battlefield. They wrote annals commemorating their accomplishments, which is how we know all this stuff. They had monumental depictions of themselves slaughtering their enemies, perhaps even more cruelly than in fact they did for propaganda purposes. Mm -hmm. And he made it all the way to the borders of Egypt. Um, and his reign became kind of a byword afterwards for um, power, pride, savagery. So what was his point in attacking Jerusalem and taking the Israelites captive? Right. What, 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 was, what was he after? Basically, territory. It became a way of competing with your ancestors, you know. Mm -hmm. It had been a long tradition for the Assyrian and then later the Babylonian kings to go on military campaigns, and if you surrendered to them immediately and rendered tribute, all's well and good. If you um, resisted or if you submitted but then decided to rebel, not so good. Mm. And their typical way to pacify their populace of their empire was to pick up the upper crust or everybody in a region, transport them somewhere else, and then reciprocally take another population and import it. Mm. Because we as Americans, almost all of us descendants of immigrants, cannot really comprehend how disturbing and disheartening it was to be dislocated and relocated in land where your ancestors were not buried. Maybe your farming traditions would not work that well. So in that context then, to, to sum up, what was the meaning of the Babylonian exile for the Jews? Well. I read something recently that was so obvious that it never occurred to me that the experience of the Jewish exile to Babylonia was basically the origin of the notion of religious faith. In the old world, the Greeks, as far as we know, never said, I believe in Zeus even though I've never seen him. Mm. Doubt wasn't a po social possibility because belief was everywhere. Nature was seen as evidence of the existence of the gods. Well, many Judeans, Judean Israelites, believed that the, their God had promised to the house of David an eternal dynasty and eternal residence in Jerusalem, and certainly his own, own temple there would last forever. It was eradicated by Nebuchadnezzar, mm. and they had to come to terms with that. Out of this came the notion that God controls history, and even when things are going against you, there's a master plan. 
that you're tried by your trials. Also, the notion of an eternal promise to the house of David turned into the belief in a future return of a king, what came to be called a messiah. Mm -hmm. So in all these ways, the experience of exile was formative for the Jews and most of all accustomed them for the next two and a half millennia to live uprooted from the land of Israel, scattered throughout the whole globe. Thank you very much for being with us. Today. You're welcome, Nick. Whenever I meet people who are opera lovers and have seen Nabucco during their travels, they always mention the chorus. And they'll say something like, it's such a terrific choral opera. But the choral music itself really isn't terribly advanced or unique in any way. It's just big, like Verdi's Aida. Let's take a look at the opening chorus of the opera, the Jews hiding in the temple while under siege by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, we have the orchestra blaring forth this exciting rhythm so typical of early Verdi. Then the chorus comes in as they bewail their fate, looking like it's the end for them, for the kingdom and for the sacred temple of Solomon. Imagine all of this blared forth by every force on stage and in the pit, and you get an idea of what the opening of this opera is like. Compared to other operas of the time, it's an audacious beginning that kind of grabs the audience by the throat and immediately demands attention. But I think the thing that people remember, and that's certainly the thing that audiences in Verdi's time remembered about this opera, was the chorus, Va pensiero sull'alle dorate. Now, there's a lot of mythology surrounding this chorus. The story goes that when it was first performed in 1842, the audience went wild and demanded that it be encored two or three times, and that this was a, a great political statement that all the Italians in attendance immediately recognized their own plight in that of the ancient Israelites and spontaneously demonstrated against the hated Austrians who ruled northern Italy at the time. Well. Most likely, this just isn't true. There was a very hard and fast rule at theaters in northern Italy that arias and ensembles, such as a chorus like this, could not be encored, simply because the Austrian authorities were afraid that just such a demonstration would occur. Some music writers even suggested that this chorus helped to spark the Risorgimento, the political movement towards the unity of Italy in the 19th century. Again, not true. By this time, the politics of the movement were well underway. But the fact is, this chorus, in its simplicity and elegant beauty, was perfectly written for the chorus of Jews who sing it on the stage, and the tune became so well known that Italians of a certain age, even today, can sing it by heart. The chorus is introduced by the orchestra as we see the Israelites on the banks of the Euphrates River 
in Babylon. Compared to other moments in Verdi's operas, this prelude seems almost simplistic, and it's certainly old-fashioned, even in the standards of 1842. But what happens when the chorus enters is almost miraculous. First of all, Verdi marks both the chorus and the orchestra parts sotto voce, which literally means under the voice. It means that everyone is to sing and play very, very quietly, with a kind of ethereal tone, as if the music is coming from far away. The orchestra has a simple chordal accompaniment, and then we get that wonderful melody. is built, like all great Italian melodies, on the arch. Every line perfectly curved like the outline of a gently rolling hill or a beautiful bridge. You'll notice, too, that the chorus is singing in unison at this point. Every single person in the chorus is singing the same melody, but in their particular range. They don't sing parts until about halfway through the chorus, and the ear is so used to hearing that unison singing that we're almost not ready for the chorus to break into parts. At the same time, the key changes, adding to the nobility of the moment. this chorus so simply and so easily it could almost be a Neapolitan folk song. It was very memorable. It became such a piece of Italian patriotism that when Verdi's funeral was held in Milan in 1901, everyone on the street sang it as a devotional homage to him. Now that's how to go out in style. For an opera that isn't produced that often, there are sure a lot of resources out there for those of you interested in getting to know the work before you see it. So let's take a look at them, shall we? 
there are four fine recordings available on CD. The first I'd like to point out to you is this EMI recording with Ricardo Muti conducting the Philharmonia Orchestra. The Nabucco is baritone Matteo Manuguerra, and the thorny role of Abigaile is sung by the great Renata Scotto. Nikola Gyarov rounds out the principal roles as the high priest Zakaria. This is a great recording and stands up very well to these later recordings. This one is from Deutsche Grammophon with the forces from the Deutschen Oper Berlin under the baton of Giuseppe Sinopoli. Piero Capuccilli is the Nabucco and the indomitable Gena Dimitrova is the Abigaile with Yevgeny Nesterenko as Zakaria and Placido Domingo in the smallish role of Ismaele. A terrific recording in every way. The first complete stereo recording of the opera was this one, conducted by Lamberto Gardelli with the forces of the Vienna State Opera. In some ways, this is still the most satisfying of the recordings because of Tito Gobbi in the title role and Elena Suliotis, an amazing soprano whose career was like a comet that flashed brightly and then disappeared almost as quickly as it arrived. But wow, is she an amazing Abigaile, just incredible vocalism. Now here's a rarity with the Tokyo Symphony Orchestra and Chorus from Valois Records, conducted by Daniel Oren. It stars Renato Brusson as Nabucco and Maria Gulagina as Abigaile, with our favorite bass, Ferruccio Furlanetto, as Zaccaria. You can actually see Maria Gulagina in this DVD from the Metropolitan Opera in a stunning production from 2001, conducted by James Levine. Juan Pons is the Nabucco and Samuel Ramey is the Zacharia. This DVD looks and sounds fantastic, even though it's not in the new HD format. If you do, however, absolutely need to have a DVD of Nabucco in high definition with widescreen and great sound, there's this production from Genoa Opera, conducted by Riccardo Frizza. The Nabucco is Alberto Gazzale, the Abigaile is the wonderful American soprano Susan Nevis, and the Zaccaria is Orlan Anastasov. You may not be familiar with these singers, but they're wonderful, and the production, although a bit static, provides a solid background for this opera. Enjoy. Verdi's Nabucco is a once-in-a-lifetime event, a huge spectacle filled with personal conflict against a grand biblical tapestry. The music is early Verdi at his best, energetic, rhythmically propulsive, lyrical, and big. Don't miss this stunning piece of musical theater, a must for every opera-goer. I'm Nick Ravellis, and I'll see you at the opera. <laughs>